Welcome to Gen X Pastor. This is the second episode entitled A Thief in the Night, and I'm so glad you decided to give it a listen. This episode contains subject matter and an audio clip that some might find unsettling. If there are children listening, please use discretion. I do hope you enjoy the show, and be sure to stay tuned after the show to find out how to get updates and how to contact me for comments or questions. Also, help me out by going to iTunes and leaving a rating and a review. It only takes a few seconds, but it really helps this podcast be seen and shared. And you'll even get a special toast on the podcast. A special thank you to Gibson Girl 2000 for your review and rating. Cheers. Now, make yourself comfortable, pour yourself a gin and tonic or whatever makes you happy, and let's get on with the show. I was probably nine or ten years old when I attended what my church called a lock-in. It's basically a slumber party at a church. And that's exactly what it sounds like. They lock us in. We would bring our sleeping bags and pajamas to sleep in, which you wouldn't want to do for threat of waking up with a magic marker mustache or mustard all over your face. Kids at that age are cruel and ruthless when it comes to things like that. The youth pastors had ordered five or six pizzas for the 12 or so members of the youth group that we completely destroyed. And then we did a few of the activities that were planned for the night, mostly designed to run off the caffeine from the gallons of Dr. Pepper and Mountain Dew we ingested. After the running and craziness was over, and we were capable of focusing our attention better, it was time for the movies that the youth pastors rented from the local Christian bookstore. A large 2,000-pound protector screen TV was pushed to the center of the stage next to the pulpit in the sanctuary of the church while we all took our sleeping bags and laid around on the floor or under the pews wherever we could be comfortable and still see the screen. We were in for a treat, the youth pastor said. We had a trilogy. I was actually very excited since I've always loved movies. The old black and whites were my favorites. I used to stay up with my mom on weekends watching the creature feature that were almost always Dracula or the Wolfman or some other nefarious character like that. I just couldn't watch them enough. So the idea of a night of movies sounded perfect to me. The youth pastors told us to watch carefully, and if we had any questions, that they would stop the movie and we could talk or pray. That made me suddenly feel a bit of anxiety, since this was an unusual thing to say before watching a movie. Even the movie that had the Wolfman, Dracula, and Frankenstein at the same time didn't have a warning like that. The movie we were about to watch was called A Thief in the Night. It would be followed by the sequel, A Distant Thunder, and then we would conclude with Image of the Beast. I found out later that there was a fourth movie that ended the series called The Prodigal Planet, but after watching these first three movies, I was ready to embrace a good Frankenstein movie as soon as possible. The movie began with the ominous sound of a clock ticking while a message appeared on the screen. It was a warning that said, Keep a sharp lookout, for you do not know when I will come. At evening... At midnight, early dawn, or late daybreak, don't let me find you sleeping. Signed, Jesus Christ. I remember suddenly finding myself sitting straight up 
instead of laying down propped up on my elbows facing the TV screen when the movie started. The next scene was with a girl waking up startled while the radio plays a news report. The announcer rather calmly stated that there was a sudden disappearance of millions of people all over the world. The girl got out of bed and looked around the house, calling for her husband Jim, and noticed his electric shaver running in the bathroom sink. He was nowhere to be found. She screams while the radio keeps playing the shocking news story as it dawns on her what really just happened. Jesus took everyone away. The rapture took place, and she was left behind. The second scene cut back to a church service she had attended before when a youth leader had read scriptures and talked about how quickly everyone will disappear and that no one knows when this is going to happen. There will be two men in a field and suddenly, in the twinkling of an eye, there will only be one. He goes on to say that everything he just read is absolutely true and will happen exactly like it said at any moment. Time is running out for those who have not accepted Jesus into their heart. Over and over he emphasized that it could happen at any time and that Jesus himself said that he will come back soon, like a thief in the night. That's when they played the theme song to the movie, and it sounds like this. As you can imagine, all of us rambunctious kids, all jacked up on Dr. Pepper and Mountain Dew, are now frozen and silent. This was not the first time we'd heard this message, of course, but we never saw it in movie form where our worst nightmares were played out in front of us. The movie was only an hour long, but it felt like a six-hour scare fest. There were scenes where young people were out having fun at a carnival or enjoying a boat ride, but then it would cut back to scenes of Christians warning of the return of Jesus and the ever-present reality that it could be at any second. As the story went on, Jim, the husband who didn't get to finish shaving, had gotten bitten by a cobra while working at his job at the zoo, later having his life saved by prayer and a blood transfusion. A pastor would later on explain that Jesus likewise saved Jim's soul with his blood that was shed on the cross and could give him a transfusion of sorts, allowing him to be saved from all his sins. Jim praised the prayer of salvation, but Patty... Jim's wife and the main character of the movie, still isn't convinced. At about midway point of explaining what salvation is and the recurring theme of making the choice to be saved or left behind when the rapture of the church takes place at any second, it actually happens, and we are right back to where the movie started with Patty waking up in bed alone. It becomes more of an action movie at this point as Patty does a lot of running to avoid the new government who is trying to catch her since she refuses to take the mark of the beast, which is the new government is called identifying. This mark is now necessary to buy or sell anything as well as show loyalty to the Antichrist, 
the main bad guy who is at the head of this new world government. Patty knew not to take the mark since she remembered the warning from the youth pastor with the creepy song that if one takes the mark, they will eventually spend eternity in the fiery burning pits of hell, along with Satan and the rest of the demons when Jesus comes back once again at seven years to give the final judgment to all those who didn't believe. All of us on the floor of the church never spoke a word. If they did, I don't remember hearing it. I was too busy being terrified. This is more than just a movie to me, and it was meant to be that way for everyone who watched. Even children. It was as real as if it was happening. I never knew for sure if I was a Christian or not. I mean, sometimes I would go next door to my friend's house and watch movies because they always rented movies that we would never allow at our house. I thought Eddie Murphy's Delirious was hilarious. And the Porky's movies were magical at that age. I even went to the movies with the same friend after his parents dropped us off and we snuck into Revenge of the Nerds since we knew that there would be exposed boobs. I told my mom that we watched The Fox and the Hound, but of course she was much smarter than that. She asked me what the movie was about and I had nothing other than to say it was a couple of furry animals hanging out. How could I love this stuff and still be Christian? Did I need to be saved again? I didn't feel very holy, even though I had asked Jesus to forgive me several times. But trying to maintain that good favor with him was seemingly impossible for me. And now I could see that it could cost me my future since it all could happen at any time, even while I'm watching trashy movies next door. When the movies were finally over, we were all exhausted but too anxious to rest. The youth pastors decided to take us all home, as I'm sure that they were exhausted as well. It was a very quiet ride home, as you can imagine. They dropped me off at my house, and I assured them that I could get in okay. In the small town we lived in, we left our doors unlocked. It was definitely a different time and place back then, of course. But on this particular morning, for some reason, the door was locked. It was early and the sun was just rising, but I never remembered a time when the door was locked. I went around to the back door, and it was locked, too. So I walked back to the front door and knocked and waited. And no one answered. I knew Mom was home because the car was in the driveway, so I knocked again. Nothing. I hurriedly went back to the back door and knocked as the panic started to rise. Still no answer. I ran back to the front thinking maybe I missed her opening the door while I was around the back. And I tried the door again, and it was still locked. All the while I was running back and forth from front to back, the scenes of the movie kept running through my mind, the scriptures playing on a loop and the ticking of the clock pounding in my head. What if Mom can't open the door? What if she isn't in there anymore? Did I miss it? Is everybody gone? I can't even get into the house. What was I going to do? I sat down on the front steps and stared into the sky thinking about what happened to Patty after the rapture took place in the movie. But I was just a kid. I had no idea where I would go or what I would do, so I just sat there, terrified and hopeless, until finally, thankfully, gratefully, I heard the door open behind me. Mom simply asked how long I was out there, and why in the world didn't the youth pastor just leave me here and not call and let her know that they were taking everyone home? She may have even said more. But I couldn't tell you what it was. 
All I knew was that I was never so excited to see her in my life. I grabbed my sleeping bag and overnight sack and walked inside trying to be cool and keep it together. She asked me how the lock-in was at one point and I just said it was okay and went to my room to sleep. I laid in bed, my heart still racing. I asked Jesus to forgive me of all my sins once again, just in case he came back while I was asleep. Just in case. The concept of the rapture comes from a few verses in the Bible. In 1 Thessalonians, it speaks of those of us who are alive will be called up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Also, it says that the Lord will descend from heaven with a cry of command, the voice of an archangel, and the sound of the trumpet of God, and then the dead in Christ will rise first. Matthew also talks about how all the tribes of the earth will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and with a loud trumpet call, will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. There's also 1 Corinthians that says, In a twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, the dead will be raised, and those that are alive will be changed, since our perishable bodies must put on the imperishable. There are several more scriptures that seem to lean toward the idea of a last day's exit for the born-again Christians that haven't died yet. And there is always that same sense of urgency that this could happen at any second. Many preachers say that all the prophecies have come to pass and that all that's left is for the grand entrance of Jesus himself. I've heard for years and even heard it in a movie that we watched at the lock-in that the Antichrist is already born and most likely already working his way up in government. For those that don't know who he is, this is a person that will rise to power during the last days and will deny that Jesus is who he says he is. He will be a deceiver and will eventually proclaim himself to be God. He will have authority over all the governments and all the religions, ruling the world and enforcing everyone to take the mark of the beast, which will not only allow people to buy and sell, but will show complete loyalty to the government and to the Antichrist himself. There have been many that people thought was the guy. President Obama, President Reagan, Gorbachev, just about every pope, Nero, Caesar, Napoleon, Hitler, but so far, the actual consummate archvillain remains unknown. Being left behind to endure what is going to happen in the world for the seven years after the rapture takes place is the worst thing that could happen to someone, according to the Pentecostal religion. It was why there is so much talk about the subject since the coming of Jesus could happen at literally any moment. The Church of God, the denomination I belonged to as a kid and later as a pastor, preached this message for over 125 years. This is a denomination of around 7 million members with its presence nearly in 180 countries. This is a lot of terrified children, you might be thinking, right? I mean, out of all of those millions of people, I think we can safely assume that there are more than just a few who lived in the fear of the sky ripping open and everybody they know suddenly being gone. 
Now, the idea of giving your heart to Jesus to avoid this horrific thing of being left behind was definitely one way to assure you were going to go. What the church taught was that you also had to maintain a level of holiness all the time. If you keep yourself free from sin, then you would always be ready no matter when Jesus showed up. As a kid and then a teenager, being free from sin was virtually impossible. Sometimes you'd sin without even trying. At that age, just about everything you wanted to do was sinful. So how in the world do you keep yourself holy when everything in your being wanted to do unholy things? I wasn't really sure of the way until I got older and was a pastor myself. And it was during a revival with an evangelist that I got the answer I was searching for. I don't recall the evangelist's name, but he was one of those old-time hellfire and brimstone, repent or else kind of preachers. Needless to say, the church was eating it up. We had a pretty full house every night of the revival. Yes, it was a church service every single night of the week. This was early on in my ministerial career, so I was listening intently on what the preacher had to say. Half out of extreme interest and half out of the PTSD kicking in from my childhood about this particular subject. The first part of his series of sermons was the fact that hell was real and we needed Jesus to avoid it. We knew a lot about this since the message had been kicked into our brains since childhood. But the last part was what we could do to make sure that we never fall away or allow what is around us to take away from the salvation that Jesus gave us. It was instructions on how to live a holy life. I actually took notes. Not only was this a necessary thing to ensure our place in heaven and avoid hell, but we also needed a holy vessel to allow the Holy Spirit to live within us, inside our bodies. It was the path towards being baptized by the Holy Spirit, which would allow us to receive the gifts of the Spirit. Included in those gifts were speaking in tongues and even interpretation of those messages. If you listened to the last podcast, you would know that this was of particular interest to me since I was lost on the phenomenon of speaking in tongues and other things that happened in revival services. It basically went down like this. Avoid all sinful things. That was it. It put me in mind of what Mr. Miyagi told Danielson was the best block. No be there. As the evangelist went on, he explained rather forcefully that when we allow things of the world, secular things around us, it can have spirits attached to it that could take away our want for a holy life. Garbage in, garbage out, basically. He actually used that same phrase. We couldn't allow anything outside of what was holy and didn't glorify God to get into our heads and our spirit. We heard this message for three days, and at the end, I even purchased some of the CDs uh, on his messages of this so that I could refer back to them as I went through the process of cleaning my home. According to him, it was the only way to ensure our salvation stayed intact and we could advance in our spirituality and receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And at the time I heard this, I was all in.
Saturday after the revival services was over, it was time for the cleansing to begin. I decided to start outside in the shed and work my way inside through each room of the house, ridding it of anything that I thought was secular and could take away from my salvation, as well as keep me from being holy. As I went through everything, it seemed clear to me why I was having such a hard time with holiness. In the shed alone, I had created a full black 30-gallon lawn and leaf bag of secular trash. Books, magazines, VHS movies, CDs, all filling up what would be three bags of, of stuff between what I had and what my wife at the time had. I threw away books like On the Road by Jack Kerouac, Generation X by Douglas Copeland, and a ton of crime and horror novels by Harlan Coben, Jeffrey Deaver, Dean Koontz, Stephen King, and Patricia Cornwell. Movies like Batman, the Michael Keaton one, of course, all of Bruce Willis's movies, even the Die Hard movies, in spite of the fact that I secretly wished to be John McClane, were all tossed. I had a collection of Alfred Hitchcock movies I was working on that went into the outbag as well. There were well over a dozen music videos that included the Mother Love Bone story and the M2B unplugged versions of Pearl Jam, Nirvana, Stone Temple Pilots, and Alice in Chains. The movies and music bag was nearly one bag to itself after all the years of collecting. The music cleansing was the hardest. I still had cassette tapes from the days of having tape holders screwed into the walls, as well as the hours spent making mixtapes off the radio. Without even looking, I poured them all into the bag. I had stacks of CDs and a nice CD holder that stood about four feet high, as well as a box of some that I I never even opened after moving into the house. Forgotten treasures, I thought, after I opened the box up. I instantly regretted even looking at the first one. I had everything from Billie Holiday and Frank Sinatra to Soundgarden and Van Morrison. The motivation seemed to slow way down so I dropped, one by one, this eclectic stash of years of music. All of a sudden, a thought went through my mind. Why, why is this necessary? What am I doing? I held up the last CD I had. One of my very favorite albums that I ever owned, August and Everything After by the Counting Crows, and hesitated. Did I really want to give all this up? Am I going to look back on this the next day and think how stupid I was? Or was this going to set off a series of spiritual happenings that would change my life, like the evangelist said? No more fear of being left behind. The possibility of being closer to God, like many of my elders were, I heard my wife in the other room closing up a bag and it brought me back to the present and away from the nostalgic trip I was having seeing the soundtrack of my life literally go to waste. I shook it off, cleared my head, dropped the CD in the bag and tied it up. I took all three bags and set it on the sidewalk to be picked up by the garbage truck. Hesitated and with one last look at my old life, I closed the door.
What followed next was that I had to go through each of the rooms that had been freshly rid of the earthly garbage and reclaim it for Jesus and swear to always maintain a holy place, not only in our spirit, but in the physical home. I went through each room praying and blessing each corner. I have to admit it was a little weird blessing the bathroom, but necessary, I suppose. Evil spirits could be anywhere. The TV would no longer play anything but TBN, which was a truly awful Christian programming network that only played more preaching and more Christian music than I was already exposed to. The radio was now set to American Family Radio that we broadcasted from our church. And any books I read from then on would be Christian-based or the Bible. This was how it would be for much of the rest of the time I spent as a pastor at that church. Seven days a week was put into hearing about the Word of God. I knew I was on the right track when I listened to Don Wildman insisting everyone boycott some different company every day during his program on American Family Radio. Disney, McDonald's, Ford, Target, Pepsi, Universal Studios, the list goes on and on. He took deleting unholiness to another level and worked to rid it from everyone whether they wanted it or not. About six months into this, and I began to feel tired of being preached to. Every message sounded the same, and I found myself unable to get excited about what any preacher talked about. I tried to find better music, and some of what I found I liked. Third Day was a favorite of mine, and you could tell by the amount of concerts I took to youth group to go see. <laughs> but even at the concerts, when it came to the Jesus talk towards the end of the show, I could feel my mind wandering. I started leaving the radio off in the car. I quit reading anything at all. I think that I was becoming tired and bored. And this total separation from the world wasn't making me feel anything super holy. I hadn't received any special spiritual advancement from God. And I still had very secular thoughts. During the day, in spite of being free from worldly infestation. I thought that after six months of purity it would go away, but it didn't. I'd still catch myself humming a Pearl Jam song and then try to stop and replace it with a worship song, telling the devil to get out of my head. I would find myself daydreaming about the Cindy Crawford exercise video and I'd quickly flip open the Bible to just any verse at all. The fear of letting in some spirit to dirty up my holy vessel seemed harder to keep up and making me feel a little schizophrenic. Is this what everyone did? How did people who didn't work in a church survive being out in the world getting bombarded by all the secular things? My mind was a mess. I could feel myself getting tired. I remember coming home and the TV being off, no music playing, just a too quiet and lonely house, all in an effort to be holy and open to the Holy Spirit. I would go outside and sit on the French porch swing with my little dog, aptly named Sweetie, loyally at my side as we stared out at the interstate, which we could see from where we sat, the only noise being the sound of the traffic heading north and south as fast as the law would allow. I remember thinking how bad I wanted to get on that road and do the same.
As the days went on and the doubt began to creep in about whether this was the life I even wanted, regardless of where I might end up after I die, I continued in the church. Going through the motions but only doing what needed to be done and keeping up a front and going home to what felt like an already empty house before the divorce was even considered was an everyday thing. I tried to keep excited by the music at the church, the one thing that really gave me a glimpse of happiness. Music was a big part of the church I worked at. It was just one of those places where we had a lot of talented people, and a lot of those were the creative types. We had artists, dancers, singers, and musicians of every age. During the late 90s, worship music was a really popular thing. Even contemporary Christian artists like Third Day and Maka W. Smith were releasing worship CDs, and there was a ton of worship singers all over the radio. Being that it was so popular and that we had several talented musicians in our youth group, they wanted a worship team for their youth services. One of the things I did with the adult worship team was we would go to other churches or citywide worship services that were starting to catch on. So we thought we would do the same for the youth worship team, and everyone seemed excited. Our first invite was to a youth revival service at the Osceola Church of God. They asked us if we would do their worship, then they would handle the rest of the service. Thinking it would be a good way for our kids to meet other kids that believe the same thing, and since it gave us a chance to show off what they could do musically, we accepted. Even though the church was located on one of the main roads of town, it still had that country church feel I recognized from my past. It wasn't a big church, and it appeared to have been built a long time ago. The front doors opened to another set of doors that led right into the sanctuary. We arrived and set up our instruments, still excited about getting to lead the worship. I hoped this would be one of many outings we would have and that the youth worship team would get a little notoriety as being a great worship team. The youth pastor there was a very nice guy, and their youth group seemed to get along great with our guys. I was actually really excited for them. We did the music, and it sounded wonderful. They all did such a great job. Again, I was so proud. The Osceola group then took over and did what was called a mime to a song that played over the speakers. This was a pretty common thing that the youth groups did during that time. They would basically act out the song as it played, and some of them were really good. After the mime, it was time for the sermon. The youth pastor got up to speak, and at first it was a pretty typical message he was giving. Basically, it was the same sermon we had all heard a million times. The same message I heard in the movies so many years ago at the lock-in. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near, and Jesus' return is coming soon. But midway through his sermon, the topic became more pointed towards the punishment for sin. Eternal hell and damnation for those who hadn't accepted Jesus as their Savior. And then he motioned at two of his adult ushers. Both of these guys were heavy-set and slightly mean-looking, at least. That's how they looked to me as they stood at the back of the church, in front of what we could tell was the only way out. They crossed their arms and suddenly looked like two bouncers at a club. The internal alarm in my head was about to go off as I scanned the room, hoping for an alternate route out, when the pastor said, Turn off the lights. While we were all in complete darkness, he explained that miners in Siberia had drilled a hole about nine miles deep into the earth, when all of a sudden the drill bit began to spin wildly, as if they had penetrated into something hollow. Geologists arrived and measured the temperatures of over 2,000 degrees in the depths of this hole. They decided to lower super-sensitive microphones down into the well, initially just to listen to the plates of the earth moving. 
But instead, to their horror, they heard this. stood there in the dark listening to this for what seemed like hours as it bellowed through the speakers. I could feel our youth group shifting uncomfortably, some whispering, some even sounded like they were crying. I became livid. I whispered to one of the adults that I think we should leave, but the youth pastor finally ordered the lights back on to the two thugs in the back and turned off that horrible sound of what he claimed was an actual recording of hell. He finished up by saying that this was proof that hell is real and not a joke. This is what was prepared for those who had sin in their lives. He then asked if anyone needed to come and pray and repent for their sins. Jesus was coming soon, and now was the time. Kids and adults both hurried down, praying for the necessary forgiveness to avoid the hell we supposedly just listened to. Naturally, when we got back into the van to leave, we were all shaken. Terrified once again by a spiritual leader. All for what? To make these guys, these already awesome kids, scared into being Christians? The thing I kept thinking about was that they didn't deserve this. These guys were not troublemakers. They loved each other and they loved their life. They never did anything wrong. And here they were, exposed to the worst part of the Pentecostal religion, just like I was back when I was a kid, to put something into their mind that they would never forget. I was furious. This is not gospel. This is not good news at all. This is a nightmare. The youth pastors that were there talked to the kids while I drove us back to the church. Just I was unable to say anything. I turned off what was seemed like a blaring American family radio as I listened to the kids ask the same questions I did when I was their age. All I kept thinking was, what was there about this religion that was joyful? Where was the peace promised? I had now done to these guys what I had done to me when I was their age. At the end of my time as a pastor, I was miserable, completely wore out, stressed to the max. My home life was in shambles and would soon dissolve. I was depressed and felt guilty and ashamed of the fact that I was now a spiritual leader that was part of a religion that felt the need to scare children to keep them coming. I just couldn't do it anymore. There was a member of the church that I used to play tennis with occasionally, which I think was more of a time where we could talk candidly about our reservations about the church and our religion. He once asked during one of our breaks, when we were talking at the net, if being a Christian was about freedom, why is there so much bondage? Why the control? Why the fear tactics? 
my mind rewound all the way back to my childhood as, as I thought about this. You have to be saved. You have to avoid the world to keep holy. Boycott this. Stay away from that. Don't think this and don't do that. You need the church. Jesus could come back at any time. Don't be left behind. I never realized that what I was feeling was just that. Bondage. I didn't feel happy and joyful. I wasn't excited about the riches and treasures that I would find waiting on me when I finally made it to heaven after an exhausting run on this earth. It was because I didn't see the world as something to be avoided. I've heard the scripture over and over again that said, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? But I never felt like I was gaining the world. I just wanted to live in it. I wanted to experience life here on earth. The world is not a bad place. There are certainly bad things that happen in the world, but the world is not bad. And so what if there is bad? Being a Christian didn't keep you from bad things. I still attended funerals. I still prayed for the sick and the dying. I spoke to people about addictions and loss they suffered. The more I thought about it, the clearer it became. To feel free and be happy, I would have to go back to being a member of the world that I lived in. I couldn't separate myself from who I was or where I lived. And fear, I now could see, was a way to control me. I didn't want to live in fear the whole time I lived on this doomed planet. At that point on that tennis court, I realized that my identity was gone. I was a carbon copy of anyone who tried to live this unobtainable holy life. And when I left the ministry, after some adjustment, I started to find myself again. And I liked me. And I missed me. And whenever I felt like it, without any worry or fear at all, I would get in my car, put on my brand new Kind and Close CD, and turn it up all the way. stretch of imagination, but I knew who I was, and I spent many years going down many roads, rediscovering myself all over again through much trials and error, and now at 45 years old, I'm the best version of myself I've ever been, so wonderfully in love with my beautiful wife, and completely amazed daily at her son, a kid I look at as my own. Our assortment of personalities of the animals we have running around, collectively making our house a glorious playhouse full of them. We don't worry about eternal fire in the graves, but we embrace life each day, so thankful for what we have. We've taken the hurt and pain we've had in the past and turned it into wisdom and gratefulness for the peace we have now. I think about God all the time and wonder when he looks down on us what he would think. Some may think that even though we don't go to a church and profess Jesus as our Lord and Savior, that we are in danger of severe judgment. But what I truly think is that he looks at us, he smiles, and he sees people living and enjoying the world he made for us, working through the hardships and embracing the wonderful memories we make every day. 
It's real life. It's being the beautiful people who design it. And it is absolutely beautiful. Thank you for listening to Gen X Pastor. Please look me up on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and check out www.genxpastor.com for updates about the podcast. You can also leave a voicemail at 573-575-6060 with any questions or comments you might have, as well as leave me an email at genxpastor at gmail.com. Also, if you'd like to contribute to the making of this podcast, stop by www.patreon.com slash genxpastor.com. Finally, please stop by iTunes and leave a review and rating to get this podcast heard. Thanks again, everyone, for listening. Talk to you again soon. Now when you open up your wings to speak out.